Hello, friends. This is Darren Hayes of PigskinDispatch.com. Before we take you to your favorite Sports History Network show, just want to tell you a little bit about some merch that you can pick up that represents your favorite SHN podcast. So far, there's t-shirts, coffee mugs, and even books from some of the authors that do podcasts right here on SHN. Who could buy something better than that than have the history right from the, the gentleman that you hear talking about it? But we also are adding things each and every day. And where's that store, may you ask? Well, it's at SportsHistoryNetwork.com. Up at the top, there is the SHN. HN merch button. Click on that. It'll take you right to the store and you can be representing your favorite podcast and show the world that, hey, on the swag that I'm using, it's the headquarters of Sports Yesteryear, Sports History Network, and my favorite podcaster, the Sports History Network store. Shop there today. This podcast is part of the Sports History Network, your headquarters for the yesteryear of your favorite sport. You can learn more at sportshistorynetwork.com. At the beginning of the Roaring Twenties, the world was at a crossroads. An entire generation of men in Europe, and to some extent North America, had been devastated by the Great War, now known as World War I, and the so-called Spanish flu pandemic. Additionally, events in dozens of countries resulted in leadership changes, new intrastate alliances, and whole new political systems. In Russia, the Bolsheviks ran out the monarchy in the name of Karl Marx's call to the proletariat. In China, the transition from 2,000 years of imperial rule to a Republican government unifying the provinces was ongoing. And the Paris Peace Conference, which formally ended World War I, also resulted in the Idealistic League of Nations, the world's first truly international governmental organization. Despite the overwhelming fatigue of international conflict and the incoming decade of relative peacefulness of the 1920s, however, another war was brewing. The War of the Sexes in the struggle for women's equality. Between 1917 and 1929, some 37 countries granted women the right to vote, though some countries, such as Australia, Canada, the U.S., and Indonesia, limited these rights for Native women or even non-white people. The 1920s were also a boom time for sport. The Olympics returned after the previous games had been cancelled due to the war, and international test cricket resumed with the 20th playing of the Ashes between Australia and England in 1920. That same year, the National Football League was born, albeit under a different name, as was the Negro National Baseball League. And by 1930, the first Soccer World Cup had been organized. But just as significant as any of these events, was the revelation that, hey, women could play sport at the highest levels as well. Alice Josephine Marie Milliot, a French woman doubtlessly inspired by the efforts of her countryman Pierre de Coubertin in the previous century to resurrect the ancient Olympic Games, leveraged her status as the founder and head of the Fédération Française Sportive Féminine to get meetings with the International Olympic Committee in the teens. The IOC turned down Milliot's proposals to put women's track and field events in the 1924 Olympics, and so she formed her own competition, the 1921 Women's Olympiad in Monte Carlo. 
100 athletes from France, Italy, Switzerland, and the United Kingdom competed in 10 events. Though virtually ignored in North American media, the Games captured Europe's imagination enough to lead to the formation of the quadrennial Women's World Games in 1922. And half a world away, certainly paying attention, was one exceptional young woman, a 15-year-old Wunderkind who would go on to become a national hero, an international feminist icon, a pioneer in sports writing, and perhaps Japan's greatest female athlete of all time. Her name was Kinue Hitomi, and her brilliant athletic career is topped only by her ultimate influence on her nation's culture and the tragically expansive country of what might have been. My name is Oz Davis, and this is Truly the Goats, sports history as told through its superstars. Madame Milliard's efforts with the IOC ultimately proved to have not been entirely in vain. Increasing participation and interest in the Women's World Games, plus, pragmatically speaking, Milliot's refusal at first to remove Olympic from her game's name, the committee promised the inclusion of 10 track and field events for women at the 1928 Olympic Games. As in Japan's Edo period of the 17th to 19th centuries, leadership saw sport as a crucial aspect of culture, and in the young 20th century, culture could serve as a catapult to international prestige. An early test of this assertion came in 1926, when Kinure Hitomi participated in the Women's World Games as a one-woman team for Japan. All she did at those games was win two golds, one silver, and one bronze medal, thus bagging more medals in individual sports than the entire Czechoslovakian team, and falling one shy of matching the home team Sweden total. The stage was set for Hitomi, already breaking ground in Japan as the country's first ever female sports writer, and a generation of Japanese athletes to wow the world from Amsterdam at the 1928 Olympic Games. For episode four of Truly the Goats on the all-time greats and history of Japan's national sport of sumo wrestling, I was fortunate enough to be joined by Dr. Dennis Frost, director of East Asian Studies at Kalamazoo College in Michigan and author of two books, More Than Medals, A History of the Paralympics and Disability Sports in Post-War Japan, and Seeing Stars, Sports Celebrity, Identity, and Body Culture in Modern Japan. Dennis was the one who turned my attention to the story of Kinue Hitomi and suggested that she'd make an excellent subject for Truly the Goats, particularly in reference to one of the show's major obsessions, namely Babe Didrikson's areas. With the delayed 2020 Tokyo Olympics now running in 2021, I could think of no better time than to tell the story of this world shifter of an athlete, and no one better to guest than Dr. Dennis Frost. Dennis Frost, welcome back to Truly the Goats. Thanks for having me back. It's a pleasure. The last time we spoke on Truly the Goats, uh, we talked a lot about the Edo period, the 17th to 19th centuries in Japan, the peak of which was the heyday of the great sumo wrestler Hakuho. We also spoke quite a bit about whatever they're going to call this crazy century. <laughs> yeah. Hopefully they don't call it the end times, but whatever <laughs> they call it. So we talked about that, but today we're going to talk about Hitomi Kinue, who is growing up in a historically distinct and 
again, significant time period in Japan. So tell us a little bit about this era in the 20s and 30s. So yeah, Hitomi is, uh, she's a fascinating figure in many respects. She comes of age uh, at a moment where Western sports have been introduced in Japan about, you know, they're introduced in the late 1800s. And so they've been kind of, they're beginning to be established, but uh, sports for women are still very, very new. Uh, and so, so there's a lot of different sports that are being introduced. Baseball is already, by that point, is actually already pretty popular. Uh, you know, it's spreading to middle schools and high schools uh, and, and all over Japan. Uh, but, but again, sports for women are something that is not uh, very common. Uh, and so, but the, at the same time, this is also a moment where you're starting to see more and more women's activism. So you're seeing more and more women get involved in issues of politics. There's a women's suffrage movement that kicks off around this time in Japan. Uh, you're seeing more and more women coming into the workforce. So this is a really fascinating moment uh, in terms of kind of the historical changes that are happening for women and lots of other people, of course, uh, in Japan at this point in time. Yeah, I was going to ask you about that because it seems like, first, I, I don't believe that a lot of people in the West would, would just jump to that conclusion that, yeah, a woman like Kinue can, can, can get a job as a sports writer, mm-hmm. no less, and that she could be on this very high level of competition. Again, like you mm-hmm. said, a lot of games are coming out at this time for women as well on the international yeah. scene. But Japan in particular especially with the women's athletes, they appear on the scene just suddenly and instantly are among the tops. Mm-hmm. How much of this is based on that sort of nationalistic thing that we kind of saw in the Edo period as well, where like sports is a cultural lever, mm-hmm. especially as we're getting into this international age? How much of it is that? So I definitely think that's part of the, the story and part of her story in particular, because she does become arguably, you know, one of the things I, I've talked about in, in t- writing about her is that she becomes, I think, one of the most famous uh, sports figures of her era, like more famous than many of the men she's like contemporaries with. And pr- part of that is that she is so successful on the international stage that she is, you know, she's sometimes referred to in Japanese as the world's Hitomi. She's Japan's Hitomi, you know, and Hitomi, again, that's her family name. So they're, they're just talking about her like in this in the sense of like everybody knows who she is. And it was this sense, I think, uh, very much tied to an interest in kind of Japan trying to demonstrate that it was had joined the international crowd. Uh, and and one example of that is women's sports. Um, and, you know, and in some ways, Japan is is leading. I mean, she she won several uh, you know, was had had world records and things like that. And that was pretty unique uh, at that moment. Like you said, you know, in some ways it feels like if you're looking at this historically, it almost comes out of nowhere. There's no Japanese competitors. And then it's like, boom, all of a sudden you have this, you know, one of the world's best athletes uh, emerge seemingly out of nowhere. And wow, burst onto the scene she did. At the 1928 Olympic Games, the first with women's track and field events, Hitomi once again comprised the entirety of Japan's women's team. She won a silver medal at the 800 meters, losing by a sliver to Germany's Carolina Radke, who had set a record in that race. But the international media attention Hitomi received was pure gold. A representative piece during those Olympics ran in the Washington, D.C. Evening Star, entitled, Kimi Hitoni, not only sports star, but she is some girl. The article reads in part, the Japanese sent only one woman to represent them in the women's games, but she is some girl. Kimi Hitoni, 20-year-old wonder girl from Osaka, is a track team all by herself. A few weeks ago in England, Miss Hitomi established a women's world record in the broad jump at 18 feet 4 inches. She was beaten last Saturday at Stamford Bridge, London, by Miss Gum, the British girl athlete who set a new world record of 18 feet 7 inches. 
But on the same day, Missy Tommy equaled the world record for women in the 200-yard dash, doing 25 four-fifths seconds flat. But even if she does not win in any event, she is a remarkable girl. Many of the female athletes here have amazing athletic prowess, but little else. Missy Tommy, attired in a soft gray-green suit, sitting among the men members of her team while they played billiards in their hotel, impressed this writer as one of the most magnetic personalities he had ever encountered. She does not chew gum, nor does she try to look, nor act like a man. Not even on the track in her funny little black-knitted sweatsuit. Negri Farson for the Washington Star and the Chicago Daily News, July 30, 1928. Hitomi remained a fixture on sports pages worldwide. When she broke the record for the 200-meter dash at the All Japan Track and Field event in Tokyo in 1929, news outlets all over America reported the achievement with headlines like, Japanese Girl Smashes World Track Standard. The next world for Hitomi to conquer would be at the 1930 Women's World Games. Because the IOC reneged on the promise they'd made to Madame Billiot and her FSFI, sanctioning only five women's track and field events rather than the ten of the initial bargain, this separate women's event continued. The women's games had doubled in number of participants from 100 to over 200 in the past eight years, and competing nations had more than tripled from 5 to 17. Twelve track and field events were held, and some five other games, basketball and handball among them, figuring in the exhibition as well. As for Japan, this time Hitomi had teammates. A Japanese team numbered six. Hitomi was the only non-high school, non-collegian of the lot, and she would participate in seven events, while her teammates were slated for three or four. Kinue came away with all four of Team Japan's medals from that event, one in such disparate events as the 60 meters, the long jump, the javelin, and a triathlon of three track and field sports. Directly after the 1930 games in Prague, Hitomi and her teammates traveled to compete at a two-nation track meet in Poland against another new international sensation, the American resident-slash-Polish citizen Stanislawa Walasiewicz, a.k.a. Stella Walsh. Walsh carried her record-setting 100-meter win at the AAU Track and Field Championships earlier that year by winning three golds and a bronze at the Women's World Games, including in the 60 meters against Hitomi. At the Poland meet, Stella won two events, and Kinue won. Team Poland won in the scoring, 55-38, but no matter. Kinue Hitomi's international superstar status and the new respect Japan's athletes were gaining on the world stage continued to grow. In an article running in the Kansas City Star in November 1930 entitled, Japanese Girl Called Greatest Athlete, the uncredited writer readily bestows upon Hitomi a certain title, then much more rarely used than today. The newspapers of London quite generally spoke of her as the world's greatest woman athlete, says the St. Louis Post-Dispatch. Miss Kinue Hitomi had just come from the third meet of the Women's World Games at Prague, where she was captain of the Japanese team, and, if anything, could have broken the Eastern Reserve to the extent of catching her to blush, it would have been the showers of adjectives poured upon her sleek, bobbed head. The Manchester Guardian spoke of her as undoubtedly the greatest girl athlete the world has ever seen, and that is going back to the time when Greece and Rome had athletic contests for women similar to those for men. But the English sports writers cite a long series of records to support the claims they make for Missy Tomei. 
She holds the world's 100-meter record of 12.2 seconds jointly, the world's 200-meter record of 24.7 seconds, the world's broad jump record of 19 feet 11.1 inches, and the world's triathlon record. It is difficult to believe confronting the records of Misitomi and the other Japanese contestants, men and women, in international athletic contests, that it was only 18 years ago that Japan first sent a team to the Olympic Games, a team that participated, and that was about all. From the first, Japan apparently realized that native excellence alone could not make up for the long delay in entering the international sports arena. Misitomi was captain of the team of six girls, most of them between 17 and 20 years of age, who took part in the women's games at Prague recently. There she won the broad jump at 19 feet 4.2 inches. When she is not in athletic competition in some part of the world or another, Misitomi is on the staff the Japanese newspaper Osaka Mayanichi, and it is said that, unlike most athletes, she does her own writing without aid of the American device of a ghostwriter. She attributes Japan's athletic prowess during the past 10 years to the keenness of the boys and girls who are given a thorough athletic education in their most impressionable years. Let's talk about that iconic step. From the outside, it seems like celebrities and franchise characters are even bigger in the public consciousness in Japan. Figures become almost larger than larger than life. Back then, does this sort of thing exist? And do the women's athletes of Japan have this sort of pull? That's a good question. And, and my sense is that not all of them do. That, you know, like you said, she, she is part of a kind of this broader movement of women that are kind of emerging on this the, the domestic Japanese sports scene, but also kind of play, competing internationally. Uh, but most of them don't get the same degree of attention that Hitomi does. Um, and again, part of that is just she's she's more successful. Like you said, she wins the medals. You know, it's it's her winning these team medals. Um, and I think that that's a big part of it. But she was uh, she was everywhere. Uh, you know, it was one of those things where she shows up in in cartoons uh, in these cartoon magazines that were produced at the time. So she sh there's like cartoons kind of making fun of her, uh, and you know, and praising her. Kind of a mix a lot of times. Uh, and there's um, also she shows up like you said in the media. She's all over the media. She was she was also very prolific herself. She wrote several books uh, and published them. Uh, and she gave speaking tours and so was traveling all over the place. So in some ways, you know, she was more prominent, I think, partly because of what she wanted to do and partly because she saw herself very uh, intentionally as someone that was that was out there kind of as a pioneer, kind of breaking new ground for women. Uh, and so she wanted to kind of go out there and do this. So she made herself in some ways larger than life. At year's end 1930, international sports fans had to be in equal parts amazed at the present and excited for the future. In fewer than 10 years, organized international women's sport had gone from occasional curiosity to regularly scheduled world-class headline-grabbing spectacle under the auspices of the FSFI. Thanks in no small part to the rising stars in track and field, women's sport had gone from nearly zero to golden age in one decade flat. Better yet for those fans was the certain perception that the best was yet to come, namely at the 1932 Olympic Games. Hitomi would once again be there to challenge Walsh in the sprints, and those deeply in the know about athletics may have already been penciling in a newcomer to the sport who'd recently led her team to three consecutive AAU basketball championships, Dave Didrikson. Whatever the result, the 100 meters at the 1932 Olympics alone already looked like instant history, an all-time classic in the making. But it just wasn't to be. For Hitomi, 
was about to face the one opponent she couldn't beat. We'll get back to the Truly the Goats podcast in just a moment. But first, I'd like to take a minute to tell you about quite possibly the greatest website of all time, newspapers.com. If you're listening to this podcast or any of them at the Sports History Network, you're probably into sports history. And you probably also know that for learning about anything prior to, say, 1990 online, the typical search engines like are nearly completely useless. But then there's newspapers.com. Newspapers.com gives you access to over 640 million pages worth of news from North America, Britain, Ireland, and more, dating from 1798 to last week. Do up a search for Super Bowl One, the 36th Berlin Olympics, Wayne Gretzky's first game, whatever. Newspapers.com takes you there with historical flavor that search engines like just don't give you. And now get a free one-week subscription to Newspapers.com by visiting SportsHistoryNetwork.com slash newspapers. With a paid subscription, you'll also be helping to support the production of this podcast and other Sports History Network shows. That's SportsHistoryNetwork.com slash newspapers. Newspapers.com. Way better for searches than you know what I'm talking about. At the Sports History Network, we're all about sports yesteryear, and so we're so pleased to introduce you to Row One, an online memorabilia gallery and shop that brings your sports history to life anywhere. The Row One gallery includes over 5,200 gorgeously reproduced prints of team posters, game program covers, game tickets, advertisements, and more in baseball, pro and college football, pro and college basketball, and more. And any gallery item may be printed in a variety of sizes on wood, metal, canvas, acrylic, or poster paper. And in Row One Shop, check out the thousands more of unique Unique items with a retro and historical designs dating back to 1876, including t-shirts, long sleeve shirts, phone cases, mugs, blankets, pillows, towels, and even shower curtains. Go to sportshistorynetwork.com, R-O-W number one, for access to the full Row 1 catalog and for gallery prints and gift items, plus get a 15% discount off all prints on the Row 1 Pictorum Gallery with coupon code SHN15. Follow the link on the show notes. The downside to acting as any type of social innovator, a revolutionary even, is the backlash one is certain to face. And Kinyume Hitomi was no exception whatsoever. In a society rife with traditional values like Japan, novelty can easily agitate the old school. In short, not quite everyone back home in Japan was as thrilled by the girl wonder as were foreign sports writers. I've read that there was negative backlash to Kenya. Can you explain that to me? Was, was there this sort of backlash? Definitely. Uh, and I mean, it's of course not unique to Japan. I mean, some of the names you mentioned faced exactly the same thing uh, in other contexts. And so it's not, it's hardly surprising that we're seeing something similar happening in Japan uh, in that sense. But yeah, she, um, there was definitely kind of, you know, people who were conservative arguing that like, you know, it's unfeminine for women to be out there competing in these sports. There were people who were critical because um, in some ways, because she was showing up the men because she's winning international medals and achieving international success. And the Japanese men are not doing that. So there's people that are kind of criticizing that aspect. There was, you know, also critiques of why isn't she married? That was like a question that she often would get asked. And in fact, one of her last articles she wrote was an article kind of complaining essentially about all these people asking this question of why aren't you married yet? And, and you know, and so there was lots of kind of things like that. But again, this is also part of this moment where there's a lot of, of women that are kind of choosing different options. They're deciding to, you know, go into the workforce and maybe wait to get married. So that's, she's part of this broader kind of social development in this, what's often referred to in Japanese as kind of the, uh, the woman problem, the Fujimondai. 
as the Japanese phrase for this. So uh, it's something that's it's being talked about, and she kind of is, becomes part of this in a sports in a sports side. And there was also lots of kind of discussion around her her sexuality, her gender. Um, there was some people that were really cruel. Um, and the same thing you saw this. You know, I think Babe Diedrichson had some of the the same experiences uh, in, in other in other contexts. Whatever King Hugh had thought of her detractors, she had no intention of slowing down in either her athletic or professional career, nor even in her new role as a public figure. The Poland Bee, directly following the women's games in 1930, was chased up in turn directly thereafter by events in Berlin, Brussels, Paris, and London. When she and her team finally arrived back in Japan in October, Kinue started giving talks at women's colleges and making public appearances throughout the country, in addition to staying in training and filing stories with the Bayanichi. But by late March, she was checked into an Osaka hospital. Three months later, under a tight veil of privacy and secrecy, Kinyue Hitomi was dead of pneumonia. She was just 24 years old. Because she died early, uh, and, you know, one of the things I've talked about a little bit is that she sparked this kind of movement around sports medicine mm. uh, kind of uh, there. So there was kind of criticism of like, how did she get to the point where she was so unhealthy uh, you know, as this elite, supposedly health, super healthy athlete, how does she get to the point where she she died uh, suddenly? So there's there's lots of different critiques that pop up depending on kind of the area of society that their their people are coming from. I was going to ask that: How does she die so suddenly from pneumonia in the 20th century? Well, and we still we still don't know, right? We still don't because there was never an actual autopsy done, and so the suspicion is that she actually maybe had uh, tuberculosis, or she just developed like some sort of chronic lung infection. Uh, the tuberculosis wouldn't it wouldn't be uncommon, uh, you know, at that point in time it was kind of a one of the right. kind of most common diseases in Japan. Uh, and lots of other places too, of course. But the fact that she would have caught it suggests, you know, how does an athlete, you know, who's who's healthy and running and active, doing all this, and and a big part of this is that overwork uh, is often what uh, a lot of people said is that she essentially, in some ways, kind of worked herself to death through training and all these these lecture tours and, and things like that. She just she just wouldn't stop uh, and take a break and rest and recover. Uh, and so, you know, there was there was signs there was signs even when she was on her last tour in Europe that she was not very healthy uh, and was already starting to struggle. And then, you know, about a year later, she 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 passes away. What was the effect of Kinua's death in Japan? And maybe much more importantly, what has been her influence on culture and sport? since that untimely passing. I mean, you mentioned sports. Medicine. Yeah, yeah. I mean, and it's really, it's really rich. And that was part of, you know, one of the other things that I really enjoyed digging into her story is that when, when I first started looking at this, I would mention her name to people and they would say, oh yeah, I know who that is because I saw a documentary about her in, in Japan, of course. And because every time the Olympics happen, her story gets kind of replayed. Uh, and, you know, and when you have a, a female athlete in Japan, particularly a track and, track and field athlete who wins some medal, her story often kind of comes back and kind of, uh, and so there's a way in which, you know, partly because she's like got that pioneer status, partly because, you know, when people win medals, they, they often like, who are the earlier medal winners and things like that. So, so I think she's had kind of a long-term impact, uh, you know, that continues. And a lot of the, the track and field athletes from the eighties and nineties kind of refer to her and reference her as kind of somebody that they kind of held up as kind of a role, a role model, which is really interesting because that was, you know, 50, 60 years before many of them were really active. And, and so, 
So that's kind of fascinating to see that. And then she was kind of for a long time, the last kind of major Japanese uh, female athlete who was competing and winning medals at the, at the Olympics. So part of that is that, you know, the mm-hmm. Olympics, they got complicated, you know, they didn't run the 800 where she won her first medal at the Olympics, uh, you know, which is one of the ones she's most famous for. Then the 800 wasn't run for another, I think what, 40 years or something. Part of the, part of the issue is that women were in a different status and kind of the categories were different and things like that. But, but it's also, you know, I think her, her death did, um, like I said, triggered all this kind of discussion about sports medicine for the critics. It was kind of the perfect ammunition. Uh, they could say like, well, look, see, we were right. Women shouldn't be doing these kinds of things there. you got pushback because, you know, the other piece of the, her, the story, and this is something that a lot of people don't always talk about, but is that this was tied to eugenics. The eugenics movement was very much tied to women's sports, like the idea of, of healthy mothers, healthy, having healthy women that can become healthy mothers, produce healthy children. Uh, and there was a lot of the people promoting sports were tied to the eugenics movement. And so they were trying to counter that, that idea, this idea that, you know, this is, it makes women, it's dangerous for women to compete internationally. So, so there's kind of this after her death, then there's kind of all these different kind of moving pieces. You get the critics and the counter critics and these people kind of that are pushing women's sports for, you know, the, the sports sake and for women's sake. And then there's the eugenicists that are pushing it for this, that particular element. Uh, you know, so it's a, it's a really kind of fascinating kind of mix of all these different moments and like i said it's it was a fascinating period in japanese it's one of my favorite periods to look at is something called the interwar period the period between world war one and world war two when japan really is just its sports scene is booming uh and the fact that you get this really kind of famous athlete that everybody at the time knows and that she continues to be known and continues to be kind of problematic because of because of her death because of these questions that that were generated around uh, sexuality and things like that that they never kind of got addressed and this this kind of keeps coming back uh, and so it's a big part of the story so yeah so fa- she's she's just really really fascinating I mean, an amazing athlete i mean right i mean, must have been kind of i wish you know wish i could have seen it. I, i've never got to see any footage of her uh, i did look for it like desperately hunted for actual footage of her competing there's supposed to be some but i never was able to find it myself In the 21st century, the Olympic Games are not looked upon with the same reverence, respect, and interest as they once were. They no longer evoke the excitement and wonder. In the lead-up to the Games, one may find just as commonly as stories of the athletes themselves, the stories of corruption amongst Olympic officials, doping scandals, of the environmental toll taken by massive, hastily built construction projects, Maybe this admiration of the games is something vital that we've lost to neoliberal internationalism. And that would be a shame. Because the story of Kinyue Hitomi reminds us of just what this grandest of all sports spectacles can be about. The chance for entire nations to proudly show their best and brightest on peaceful, politically neutral ground. And the chance for the individual to break the barriers set before us from a time long since past, and to be remembered for all time. This has been Truly the Goats, a Sports History Network podcast. To find us online, visit trulythegoats.com. On Twitter and Facebook, we're at Truly the Goats. For more like-minded shows, be sure to check out sportshistorynetwork.com Like the man says, it's your headquarters for the yesteryear of your favorite sport. Truly the Goats thanks our guest for this episode is Dr. Dennis Frost of Kalamazoo College. Dennis's latest book, More Than Medals, is available from Cornell University Press at cornellpress.cornell.edu 
His book, Seeing Stars, which includes material on Kinyue Hitomi, is available from Harvard University Press at hup.harvard.edu. And of course, both are available through the usual online outlets for books as well. The Truly the Goats theme song is Fun on Street, greatest remix of all time, and is produced by David Liso of Dynamo Stairs. Music used in this episode includes Cuban Moon by Carl Fenton's Orchestra, Crazy Blues by Mamie Smith, and Street Life by Lobo Loco. This last track is available by free use agreement via freemusicarchive.org. This is Oz Davis for Truly the Goats and the Sports History Network saying, always, always, perspective, 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 perspective. Hey there, sports history fan. This is Arnie Chapman, a.k.a. the Football History Dude. And I hope that you enjoyed this recent episode presented by the Sports History Network and were able to learn some good old-fashioned sports history knowledge nuggets. I started the Sports History Network back in 2020 with the mission to help podcasters find a community of like-minded sports history nerds as well as helping aspiring podcasters to start their own shows. We have a little bit over 30 shows on the network right now covering all sorts of sports history, but as far as I'm concerned, we're just at the toothpick in the ocean moment, you know that. Can't even figure it out because there's so much more coming. We wanted to create the ultimate headquarters for sports yesteryear, starting with Podcast Network and our website, but we're going to continue to move into other mediums as well. And here's the cool part, because we want you to be part of our team. So if you're interested in starting your own podcast, or maybe being a guest on one of our shows, Or who knows, maybe even write an article for us over on the website. Seriously, all you got to do is reach out to us on the contact page over at sportshistorynetwork.com. You can be as technologically savvy as a Neanderthal tapping on a stone trying to figure out this whole hieroglyphics thing back in the day. Again, it doesn't matter because even if you don't understand the whole podcast space, we have a production team that can pretty much help you out with doing everything. All you got to do, head over to sportshistorynetwork.com, head to the contact page, fill it out. That message goes right to me and I'll reach out to you as soon as I can. But for now, dude, I'm through if you're through.